0: In high school, I had a buddy Mark. His older brother DJed at a college radio station which made Mark, by default, the coolest person it was possible to be. Because if there was an obscure underground, backroom hidden label record that no one knew existed and everyone still wanted, Mark had it. Vinyl, original artwork, signed, the whole package, bonus if they were from Liverpool. And now, I personally didn't want to hear a record of avant-garde screeching or these moody turtleneck suburbanites mumbling their angsty grievances. No, I like Michael Jackson. Still, still, I wanted people to think I was the kind of person that would listen to that stuff. Someone who's unconventional. Someone who's cutting edge, dismissive of your pedestrian trends. So when I met a vet, the girl I wanted to impress... I farmed out the most important task of all. I asked Mark to make her a mixtape. And I know I should have done it myself, but it was still early in the relationship. I needed to be someone else in order for her to like me for me, and Mark's a good dude. He made it extra dark and gloomy and obscure to give a true window into my tortured soul. When I saw Yvette, I looked her in the eyes, I pushed it into her hands and said, I made you something. I really want you to listen to it. Well, imagine my sorrow when I didn't hear back from her for a while, which stretched into a little while longer and later, one of her friends told me that they decided, well, who's they? They decided, who is they? They decided that maybe I was just too arty for her. The next time I saw that was at the Halloween Senior Show, where she took center stage in a Michael Jackson V formation, dancing to Thriller, mouthing every single word. <laughs> I asked Mark, to make another mixtape because i really 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 needed to wallow in some angst today on snap judgment hey dj amazing story directly from the person spinning the records my name is gun washington please always remember and never forget a playlist is not a mixtape laziness when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now then, you know that moment when you don't know where else to turn so you turn on the radio? I know, Snapers, you've had that moment. Now, imagine that you're trapped in a war zone, no way out, no one coming to save you, but you need to know you need to feel you need to hear that someone is out there so you turn on the radio
1: the radio station was not very logical idea where to put it how to do it what's the right equipment uh, is this doable or not
2: Mohammed had never set up a radio station in his life. He's a computer programmer with a master's degree from the University of Colorado. But this is his radio station. His idea was to set up a station that could broadcast into ISIS-controlled Mosul. There were a lot of problems with that idea.
1: How, how to reach the city from probably 60 kilometers away and how to broadcast to a city that you cannot physically reach.
2: Nine months earlier, when he and the rest of the city heard that ISIS was on its way, Mohammed had packed his bags in the middle of the night, got in the car, and fled.
3: Islamist militants have reportedly taken Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. Half a million people have
1: fled.
0: In Mosul, the smoldering aftermath of a battle that didn't take long.
1: The picture they paint is of a city under siege. I remember it was about 2 a.m. We didn't have a time to bring a lot of stuff with us. Most of the streets were blocked. There have been thousands of people who've been trying to escape as well. It's, it's, it's unforgettable memory.
2: And one of the most horrifying and disturbing things about the fall of his city was the way that it happened. Mohammed says ISIS, or as they call them in Iraq, Dash, pretty much won the whole battle with a media campaign based on fear.
1: They were not fighting. They, they lost the city without fighting. It's not logical. You cannot see 60,000 Iraqi soldiers, armed soldiers, leaving the city without fighting because media it amplifies the fear and people were scared from Daesh before even seeing them. Understanding uh, how Daesh used media, they used fear to control people in Mosul. And they were very confident that this fear will allow a small group of people of controlling millions. And they were so successful.
2: From then on, Mosul was held by Daesh. Families hid inside their homes. People like Mohammed, who left, lived in a kind of limbo.
1: Even though I'm not physically there, emotionally, I feel I was in Mosul. We were unable to do anything, we were hopeless. We came up with so many ideas, like to talk to, to people without putting them in danger. So the idea of the radio station came. It's a way of communicating with my people, like prisoners under Dash.
2: But again, the idea for a radio station was tricky. He and his friends built a studio in the relative safety of Kurdistan, but he had to set up a transmitter close enough to Mosul to broadcast to the civilians still inside. Mohammed found an engineer, willing to climb a 100-foot radio tower two kilometers from the dash front lines. He made a plan to drive from him there himself.
1: sounds like craziness even there was a discussion about whether a sniper can shoot the guy who was climbing the tower and how risky it is I I remember it it was sunset time I was so stressed I tried to go over that hardware pieces and try to count it again and again to make sure we are not forgetting any anything I was not able to sleep easily that night. Early morning the second day, we had to travel a long way to the front lines very close to Daesh. It took us more than 12 hours to set up the antennas.
2: Mohammed sat in his truck at the base of the tower, solving a Rubik's Cube over and over again for 12 hours.
1: Uh, and I was doing it, I think I did it probably 200 times in that day. <laughs> so I remember it was midnight.
2: He recorded a message on his cell phone, sent it up the tower, then called his friends in Mosul, asked them to tune in to the new station.
1: Like, hello, dear people in Mosul, here is Al-Ghad radio station. Brought-
2: Al-Ghad radio translates to tomorrow's radio.
1: 95.5 FM Yay, it's, it's a time it's, it's Now we are reaching Mosul Reaching a city which was completely isolated We were the first radio station broadcasting to Mosul After the fall of Mosul We are taking a risk with a very brutal enemy
2: Dash had banned music from the city. They also banned mobile phones and email and TV and TV satellites, all in an attempt to isolate the civilians, the families still living there. Mohammed's station had a signal, but now he needed listeners. He and his team sat behind their microphones and sent out the call to the unknown thousands of listeners held prisoner in their own homes.
3: We are here,
2: we are listening... Call in to tell us what's going on on your street, in your home,
1: in your mind. Because if I don't know who is in charge of this station, I will think thousand times before calling the station. The people who are in charge might be supporting Daesh, or they might leak our phone numbers to Daesh.
2: And then, finally, after three hours, the phone rang.
1: And he was... Uh, probably a hero for the station. We were very happy to receive the first call. The caller was a blind man inside Mosul. We were so excited that people listening to the station and some of them decided to be brave enough and called the station. Day by day, we start receiving more calls. And up until today... Um, one of the main problems for most of the callers, they will say, We've been trying to call you for one month, but we couldn't reach you. All cell phones and all phones will be ringing the whole time until we, we are out of air. People were spending their
2: very last dollars on phone credits, leaning out of windows to get a strong signal.
1: Allah <laughs> A'incom, Ya Rabbi, Allah A'incom. We received some some requests through messages from people who their house was struck and they were underground. They they request a help and we managed to communicate with the civil defense and they got them out. Some people text us, they will say, We have a sniper, dash sniper, on, on the roof of our house. Please let the troops know that there are civilians in that home so they will not be striking it. Or we helped reunion a kid with his mom. We've saved a family or helped an injured people to be treated.
2: And can you explain how dangerous it was for people to be calling in? I mean would they
1: Making a call on that on, on Al Red Radio Station could have a punishment which reached a death penalty. So a single call on Al lead Radio Station is taken so seriously because we know it was a tremendous amount of risk the caller took in order to reach us. Even just
2: tuning into the station was dangerous.
1: Of course, Daesh don't want the people to listen to the station. And sometimes in their checkpoints, they will force a driver to turn on the radio to see what was the last radio channel they've been listening to.
2: And what would happen if people were caught listening to your station?
1: So I, I don't know exactly what Dash will do to the people, but we know people be very careful to try to avoid that from happening. They didn't allow to have to sell for people to sell radios in Mosul.
2: Dash dedicated a transmitter to jamming the station's radio frequencies.
1: And then the frequency war started.
2: Mohammed set up a new transmitter solely to jam Dash's broadcasts. And then he moved his own station up and down the dial.
1: But because we were reaching in an abnormal time to a city that's not even under the Iraqi government, so we had some kind of freedom because we were the only radio station broadcasting to Mosul and most of the frequencies were available. So we played with the frequencies for some time and uh, we got... Even uh, like the technology to change the frequency, I can change it from using my phone.
2: And every day, people found the broadcast. Under the threat of imprisonment and murder, they still called in.
0: Hello. Hello.
4: Hello. Hello.
1: And one of the things I will never forget is one time we received a call from a woman who was crying, and it was a very sad call. So she said they were struck, and uh, she's asking if anybody can get them out. The woman had a young kid who's five days old. Um, So so she, she was crying because she said, like, they were underground and they need some help. You know, it's sometimes... I, I feel like so responsible whenever I got such a, a request, whether it's a text message or it's a call from someone who's asking us to help with, you know, life and death. And I question myself, why risk my life? Why I'm doing it?
2: Someone on staff here said listening to that call that they felt at the same time very close and very far from the woman calling it.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a nice uh, expression. Very very close and very far. One time, we received a call from a woman. It was in Ramadan, and she said, "We have nothing as a family. We have nothing. I have nothing to feed my children." So the presenter asked a single question after the call was ended. Ask what the Khalifa like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is eating right now. Abu
2: Bakr al-Baghdadi is the leader of Daesh.
1: So in less than one minute, we received a text message saying, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as they said, God protect him. He's on the front lines and he's eating yogurt with dates. We read that message on, on air so he knew dash was listening
2: and he knew it was kind of an opportunity.
1: For this reason we came up with a different program called dash fi mizani al-islami wal havara But saying dash our but The program asked listeners to call in to discuss
2: seriously the religious and philosophical justifications used by dash.
1: Because by then most of the scholars were scared to even address these problems.
2: There was one caller to this show who stood out.
1: We had a, a caller who used to have a different story. He he used to call the radio station and he was different. He had a great sense of humor. Tried to make fun of Dash many times in many occasions. He was one of the people who refused. Uh, us of changing his voice in real time. He said many times, many of my family members asked me to stop calling the station just for my security, but I refused.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: This is him, Seymour. If you listen closely, you can hear him say the words telephone and radio. Seymour had not left his house since Mosul fell to Dash.
1: So imagine a person who who didn't left his house for two years because he was afraid from Dash. Uh, one time he called the station and we were asking the people a question, what do you th- think the people will need after being liberated? He came up with a very different answer. He said, Mosul will need a sanitizer, a sanitizer to clean the streets from what was left from Dash. And the presenter laughed, and some callers called after that, and, you know, they were laughing too. But we didn't know that Dash were recording, in real time, recording that call. Seymour called all the time until he didn't.
2: Mohammed didn't hear from him for a week, and then two weeks, and then a month, and then two months.
1: We usually, like, mention the name of the regular callers if they don't call. And sometimes we ask them to send us a text message just so we don't worry about them. You know, we feel they are part of the family. I, I remember it was early in the morning. I received a text message from someone The message told him to watch a
2: video, online. The kind of video he normally refused to watch. The kind of video that Dash makes to wage its fear campaign. An execution video.
1: I usually don't watch Dash videos because it's it's inhuman. But he asked me to watch it and he said that's very important. So I opened the video. By the time I saw I saw him. I felt it's, it's Seymour. Without even seeing, like, I don't know him in person, haven't seen him before. but just seeing
2: In the video, the station, Seymour is seen wearing an, wearing an orange jumpsuit. Orange. And uh, then to make it very clear why he's being executed, um, the logo of All God Radio appears on the screen. And then the recordings of his calls to the station are played in the video with subtitles.
1: They they put the calls, he was calling the station, they put it in that video. They called the, calling the disbeliever FM. This is how they described us. And then he was killed in a very brutal way where they forced him. They He was sank into a tank filled with, uh, with detail, like sanitizer.
2: They kill him. By dropping his body into a tank of chemical sanitizer.
1: So they killed him in the same way that he was made fun of, of of Dash. To show how what will happen to the other callers if they call the station.
2: What well, what was the reaction in the station when when you guys saw that video?
1: Um, like we had all the staff came and. They said, What shall we do? and some of the staff got very emotional about it. But in these moments, you try to use your judgment and you try to decrease uh, the impact of what Daesh wants to happen. Because we knew Daesh were trying to use us to amplify the kill of Seymour and to make sure people are more scared from communicating with the outside. So that was a very hard decision I took. And, but it was, I felt I did the right thing. All the presenters talked about him and talked about what did Seymour means to us. The, there was a poetry that was written by one of the um, uh, novel per, per people. They work at the station, and also, like, I remember like seeing some of the uh, like staff crying because of that.
2: And what about you individually? Did you do you remember if you said a prayer or if you sh- cried at all?
1: Um, you know, um, we might get. Uh, I think by living in this country it might get tougher than you expect
2: Was there any discussion after he was killed about your policy on changing people's voices?
1: See, like you, we, we, don't, we don't force things on people and we know people when, when they took the risk and used to call the station they were proud of doing it they felt they were delivering the hardship they are going through with their real voices.
2: Did you think you got any change in your callers after what happened to Seymour? Any more or less callers?
1: Like all the statistics I got, we start receiving more calls from Mosul. It was a very big deal, like Seymour, one caller of Al-Ghad Radio. And people start telling, like, we are all Seymour. So if they, if they called one Seymour, we have thousands of them who are still in Mosul and who are still capable.
2: Actually, Mohammed says, every time things got harder, scarier, more violent, the number of callers would increase.
1: Statistics of what I was getting. Most of the text messages was under very tough situations. We used to get more calls when there was fighting.
2: And people didn't just want to talk about DASH and death and devastation. They wanted to talk about music and art and life.
1: Topics people were interested in were news. Of course, you have news. But at the same time, at a spare time, people want to escape from the reality. And they just want to think about something else and not just thinking about what's going to happen to us if we got struck.
2: Like they had a program called Hello DJ. People would call into the station and sing along to a pop song. Usually pretty badly.
3: Yellow
1: <laughs> Uh like when someone his voice is not good, you will like there will be a comment which makes everybody laughs. Like we'll still please don't sing again or will say, like, oh, don't, no, please, you know, like, um, you should do something else. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually
2: criticized a lot for being frivolous in a dire time and place.
1: Some of the people criticize that we've been doing some entertainment in a time where it's so tense and they think people are going into a very tough situation where if you were singing or laughing this is out of tune like that was not suitable for that time you need to be more serious it's a valid question these entertainment programs were a pain relief to the community when it was passing through the toughest moment in their lives we had some callers who used to call the station and you can listen clearly to the explosions and probably the firing happening in the background and with this guy singing a song or doing a karaoke and you feel that that's not logical for any person unless he's probably high on on something believe me it makes it makes you feel like I was able to bring joy to this person life and probably there been thousands of people who were laughing like me when i was l- listening to the radio
2: once the karaoke presenter even asked the caller why do you risk your life to call in to our silly karaoke show
1: the presenter when he asked him he said it is it's t- to us it is it's more it's not a call it's a way of proving that we existed
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you to Moni Basu for helping us get in touch with Muhammad, and thank you, Muhammad, and the entire hardworking team at All God Radio for your important work. The sound design for that story was by Leon Morimoto. Was produced by Anna Sussman. Up next, when the Snap Judgment Hey DJ episode continues, how to become an instant musical genius? Seriously, in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Hey DJ episode. Amazing stories from the beat makers. And for our next piece, we meet Derek Amato, who decided to take a little trip back to his hometown. Snap Judgment.
4: In 2006, I went to visit my mother in the Midwest, right before my 40th birthday. And I got together with a couple high school friends for a barbecue and and we were at the swimming pool in the apartment complex. You know, one thing led to another. It became doing backflips off the side of the swimming pool into the water. And I went running along the side of the pool and I dove in towards the shallow end. Well, matter of fact, the very shallow end. And I remember striking the bottom with the upper left part of my head. It was just this enormous bang. It was as if someone just stuck two you know, sticks of dynamite in my ears and my, my head exploded. I remember coming out of the water and reaching immediately for my ears because I thought my ears were bleeding. I, I couldn't hear anything. So I, I absolutely had no, no understanding of what was going on and I guess I made it towards the edge of the pool, and when I got to the edge of the pool, I collapsed, and they pulled me out onto the, um, to the concrete, and I went unconscious. I don't, I don't remember anything after hitting my head, but they took me to the emergency room, and I was diagnosed with a major concussion with no bleeding. They sent me home to my mom's house, and I slept for about four days. I remember waking up on the fifth morning. My neck was sore. My head was pretty swelled up in that upper area. My eyes were blackened, and I knew my hearing wasn't right. And I, I didn't know at that time that I had lost almost half of the hearing from the impact on my left side. Everything was dampened. But I felt reasonably okay, just a little beat up. That evening, I went over to my best friend Rick's house, and I went over to visit him. And he's got a little studio. And he was playing his guitar. And so he sat down to take a break. And I had this incredibly strange, bizarre feeling that I simply needed to go sit down at that little keyboard he had up there. I've never really been a a musician. But it was just, it felt right. So I went over and sat down at it. And um, my fingers began to play as, as if I had played pretty much all my life. And this is the very first piece that I ever played. Rick looked at me and I looked at him and I didn't know what to say. I was freaked out. What are you supposed to think when you all of a sudden sit down at a piano and you've never touched one and your hands are moving at at a rapid pace and doing things that you've never, never even tried? We didn't know what to think. It was like eerie, intense, and at the same time, Beautiful. I wasn't sure how to really explain it to my mom. I didn't know how to, re- where to start. So I asked her while we were having a cup of coffee if she would go with me to the, the music store that I would like to show her something. And we jumped in the car and headed over to the music store. We walked in and went over to one of the pianos with my mom. I sat down and I started playing and she started crying. And then the salesman came over and said, how long have you been playing? And I said, well, about five hours. And of course, he gave me the strangest look like, a, like I was pulling his chain. And my mom sat there crying. I, I, I played for maybe 10, 20 minutes for her. We got up and got in the car and it was a very quiet drive back to the house. A week, week or two goes by and I, I reached out to Dr. Darrell Trefford, whom was the advisor for the film Rain Man. I was diagnosed with um, acquired musical savant syndrome, which is immediate musical genius or immediate ability. My mind basically creates a pattern of black and white squares that almost go in like a ticker tape in a circle. So these black and white squares are my brain's musical notation. For some reason, those black and white squares tell my hands where to go. I don't capture all of them. There's there's absolutely no way to. They're going at a pace that is so intense that I, I can grab and display some of it, but certainly not all of it. The doctors refer to this as synesthesia. Those black and white squares dictate what I play. I have no control of what what comes next. I have no idea what those notes are going to be. So sometimes it's pop and sometimes it's rock and sometimes it's Beethovenish. From my understanding, there's about 30 acquired savants on the planet and I am the only one to be an acquired musical savant from a brain injury. It's a bit intense when when doctors and the world start putting a title on you that, that is so profound And you know, just because you fall into the title of a savant doesn't mean you're the best piano player on the planet. My skills are above average maybe, but I've never known how to read music. I still don't get it. It just makes absolutely no sense. I I can't even get a grasp where a C or a D or an E should be on the piano. I, I can hear the tone. I just can't, I can't show you where it is. I'm just able to, to take what I'm seeing being produced in my mind and make some sense of it with my hands. People call me and say they wanted me to get involved with their charities. I go in and I do like um, like a 40 or a 70 minute storyteller set. I, I play a little, I talk, but the, the work I get is sporadic and when I get invited to, to perform or speak or what have you. There's a price tag on everything we do in this lifetime. And I get overwhelmed and overstimulated, and sometimes I'm just exhausted, and I go into my little space where I feel okay, and that's usually in the studio. That's my comfort zone. You know, I get asked often what it would be like if, if I wake up tomorrow and if it's not here, and, and uh, When I sit down at the piano, or, you know, it's always a surprise. So I, I live in the moment, and I think I'm gonna continue to live in the moment because that's what brings me joy.
0: Yes, that happened. Big thanks to Derek for sharing a story. But Snap is please, 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 please do not try to reproduce this effect at home. You cannot. Some of the music for that story, including the song you just heard, was played by Derek Amato himself. If you want to hear more of Derek's music, we'll have links on our website, snapjudgment.org. Spectacular sound design for that story was by Snap Judgment's Pat Massini miller It was produced by Pat and Anna Sussman. Now then, when Snap Judgment, the Hey DJ episode continues, there is no betrayal like little kid betrayal. In just a moment, the Snap Judgment, Hey DJ episode, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from WNYC, the Hey DJ episode. My name is Ben Washington. Now, Snap Judgment producer Davey Kim, he's going to borrow the Wayback Machine and take us back to the time when Urkel was cool and Beanie Babies ruled the world. Don't hurt him, Davey. Snap Judgment.
3: It's the 90s and I'm a pre-preteen. I'm walking my bike down the flight of stairs outside my home. I'm just minding my own business. I just want to ride my bike. I touch down on the last step. Chink. chink chink I stop, turn around, and take my bike upstairs to a place I hate to call home. My parents moved into this banged-up housing project right after they got married in Seoul, South Korea. Just down the street is a world-famous hospital called the City of Hope. But beyond its fences is my neighborhood, the Duwats. Every day, I wake up to the sun peeking through the window security bars, and at night, I sleep to Brian McKnight vibrating through the floorboards at 2 a.m. Los Angeles was supposed to be just a honeymoon destination, but my parents fell in love with Walmart and guacamole. They were sort of young and restless and wanted to give the American dream a shot. And good for them. But you have to understand, their dream is my nightmare. I'm the only yellow kid in this neighborhood. And at that age, when your teacher tells you that being different is beautiful, they're lying. It's a weekly ritual for the neighborhood kids to throw rocks up at our windows. So one time, I started filling up my super soaker to fire back. Maybe this was going to be a playful exchange kind of thing. But then, a rock the size of a giant jawbreaker slipped through the window security bars and... Perhaps not. Then my dad marched over to the other kid's parents to make truce in broken English. That didn't work. And I don't know how many times I have corrected everyone that I'm Korean. Not Chinese or Japanese. Korean. But to be honest, it isn't always hell. Some Saturdays, I'll throw a football with the same kids who throw the rocks. Once, we were racing bikes, and I fell and tore up my knee. So all the kids hoisted me up like a king, and carried me back to my house. Another time, I remember my dad started planting these Korean Genneep salad leaves all around the project. And by mid-afternoon, it was a gardening party. Everyone was shoveling, planting, and watering the plants with water guns. And although I was still chink, as a chink that was really into the idea of fitting in, I wondered if my slur name was my ticket. Later, when we harvested the genip leaves, my dad and I walked around trying to give them away. But nobody wanted them. It smelled like rice, someone said. But that's cool. I don't like genip either. Still, I-, I never know if I'm going to get picked on, or get picked up to play basketball. It's bipolar. But nothing confuses me more than my friendship with DJ. DJ is also 11 and my next door neighbor. Both our parents say Power Rangers is the devil. So we sneak away and watch the show in the laundromat with the TV. DJ the Black Ranger plus me, the male Yellow Ranger. He knows I'm Korean and comes over every Wednesday night to eat Korean barbecue. Then we go to the laundromat again and play Pokemon, because Pokemon is also the devil. He's moving away in a month to live with his stepdad. So we spend a lot of time together. That is, unless he is with everyone else. And that's the case this one particular day, I'm heading home. I see DJ and five others sitting on the stairs in front of my door. I start walking up. No eye contact, not even with DJ. Then I get into my house and close the door. That's pretty normal. But still, I want to be there without being there. So I do just that. I tiptoe to the front door and peer out through the people. I see them, seven feet away. Then I close my eyes, press my ears to the door. And listen. They talk about the newest super soakers at Toys R Us, then girls, the new 7-Eleven slushy flavor, normal double preteen stuff. But what I'm listening for is, is if they ever talk about me. My prime directive is to glean any intel I could use to one day, maybe, just maybe, move up from my part-time homie status. Maybe DJ will put in a good word for me. And then finally... I hear this guy, Jordan, with the faux diamond earrings, ask DJ. I see you hanging around with that Chinese guy time to time. What's up with that? Are you guys, like, friends or something? I briefly let my guard down. I am about to yell, yes! Yes, yes. But I quickly pull back. Now I fix my right eye on the spy hole. I see DJ. But he feels a million miles away. I, I can see that he's torn. Is he gonna give in to Lord Zed, the Power Rangers' ultimate nemesis, or was he gonna stick with me? Uh, nah, nah, not really. He's all right, but we're not really friends. I don't even know his name. They all laugh, but the truth is, DJ is the only guy who calls me by my name. I inch over to my dad's fax machine, grab a pen and a piece of paper from the printer bed, and start scribbling down my message. DJ, my name is Davey. I sign off with hyphen Davey. Then I crumple up that sheet into a papery snowball and advance to the front door. I unlock the deadbolt, then the doorknob, crack open that door, and throw that piece of paper Then I slam the door and lock it shut. Then I pretend to stomp away to my room, but I sulk at the door, and a feeling of regret overtakes me. I hear them uncrumple that piece of paper, and in unison, they read the note. DJ, my name is Davey. I don't know what to expect. And then they start... Laughing. DJ? (laughs) DJ. His name is Davey DJ. Don't you know DJ? (laughs) Come on. They tease him, but he laughs with them. Then they stand up and walk away. I feel like a fool, so I run to my room and cry or, or whatever. Later that evening, after my parents come home from work, My mom nicely asks me to take out the trash. But right as I open the door, right in front of my feet, I spot my crumpled up paper. I stoop down, pick it up, and start to uncrumple it. Beneath my note is another scribbly note in DJ's handwriting. Hey Davey, I'm sorry about earlier. There are some lines after that, but I skipped them because all I can see below his note is his sign-off, hyphen TJ. He's TJ, not DJ. How come he never said anything or, or maybe he did and I didn't listen? TJ and I don't hang out again. We cross paths a couple times, but all I can rally is a half-hearted hey. A couple days later, I see him and his stepdad shuttling boxes full of his belongings outside of his apartment. He's finally moving out. TJ and I start on the opposite ends of the staircase right as our sketchers reach the same step, I find myself stopping. Him too. I want to say something, but he goes for it first. Hey, uh... You know, you know about last week? Yeah, yeah. We good. It's cool. Cool, cool. Hey, uh, last night... My mom tried to make a salad with that genyip stuff. It was, uh, nasty at first, but with ranch sauce, it's alright. Really? Well, uh, I still hate genyip, DJ. Psh.
0: Thank you, Davey Kim, for sharing that story with the Snap. And you too, thanks, DJ, TJ. If you're listening, Davey is looking for you because that new Power Rangers movie isn't going to watch itself. For more of Davey's Tales as the Spelling Beer with his high school screamo band, head on over to our website, snapjudgment.org. Or even try davykim.com. The sound design, production, and stories from the triple threat himself, Davey Kim. And actually, We've got some Davy Kim news. It's a big announcement. Snap's Davey Kim is loading up his car and going on adventures here and abroad, leaving leaving us alone. So alone. We're going to miss him terribly, and we're jealous of him at the same time. Big love. In universe, you don't know how awesome, kind, generous, thoughtful, and talented this guy is. Once a snapper, always a snapper. Davy, I can barely choke out goodbye. Big love. Know this, Snappa Dappas. The story is never over. Full episodes of the greatest procrastination while you're driving, running, doing laundry, washing dishes, walking the dog, cleaning and cooking podcast ever. Snap judgment. Some of sound movies of the mind available right now on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Pandora. Friends, wherever you get your podcast, get the Snap Judgment podcast right now before the legal department finds out. Join the Snap Nation conversation on Facebook. I'll give you some deep thoughts. And Snap Secrets on Twitter, G-L-Y-N-N, Washington. Yeah, I spell it with a Y as well as The show is brought to you by the finest collection of VJs ever to spin a record. Make some noise, party people, for the man who can, the Uber producer. Mark Ristich, Sir Scratch-a-Lot, Pat C Miller, that's him right there, Anna, Turntable Sussman, the no-music mix master Joe Rosenberg, Nancy, Tape Deck Lopez, Renzo, 8-track-Goreo, The real real Deal, Leon Morimoto, Lisa Egan, Wears Wings, Davy Kim, Shouted Deuces, Liz Mack, Shakes What Her Mama Gave Her, Eliza Glowstick-Smith, the cot has a disco ball. Jasmine Aguilera does not. And you may have heard at the club that this is not the news. No way is news. In fact, you could get VIP passes to the big show only to discover when you get there that everyone has VIP passes. And snappers, when everyone has VIP passes, no one does. All that. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is... W-N-Y-C.